0: Let's all, uh, let's all stand as we go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for uh, just this time that we have to be together as a church family, to come under the name of Jesus Christ, the one in whom we believe for our eternal destiny. And God, we thank you, Lord, for uh, just the opportunity to be growing together as a church to be spurring one another on to know that whatever come what may in the world around us sickness trial hardship we've all been through uh, different measures of it all but when we come here and when we gather on a sunday morning like this we're reminded of all that we have in christ of all of our glorious future That awaits us in heaven. God, we know when we come together that you're with us, that you've got a plan for us, that we can have hope that our future is bright. God, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, watch over those uh, who are up the mountain right now. We pray for our Trek youth group. Would you keep them safe? And may they also learn about you uh, this weekend. And now bless us now, God, as we open up your word. Would you honor our efforts to understand you May your spirit guide our study today in the book of Colossians. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Open up your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. As you're turning there, uh, when I was a kid, my, uh, my, my dad sometimes would get up to make breakfast. Uh, he wouldn't do it very often. He's kind of like me. He's not a great cook. Uh, but every once in a while, he would, uh, you know, brave the kitchen and, uh, and go out there and try and uh, make a, a nice hearty meal on a Saturday morning for us kids and my, my mom. And, and uh, one such morning, he woke up early and uh, he, he got the cookbook out you know to make some pancakes and uh, he started putting the ingredients together as he was reading it. And he put it all together in the, in the bowl and stirred it up and, and, and poured the pancakes on the grill. And we, we woke up to this, this wonderful smell of pancakes in the air and we came uh, down... We came out of our bedrooms, got to the dining table and our dad put the pancakes in front of us and, and uh, he kind of he hesitated as he did, but he, he put the pancakes in front of us and we kind of looked at them and they looked a little bit different than usual, but nonetheless we put the, spread, spread that butter on, we put the syrup on, we, we uh, cut out a piece and we took a bite and uh, we all spat it back out immediately. And my dad said, what? And we're like, that's horrible. And he's like, I thought something was wrong. And he looked back at the ingredients and my mom came over and she looked at the counter and she's like, honey, um, what's that? And he said, that's flour. She said, no, that's baking soda. (laughs) My dad said, no kidding. Needless to say, we did not have some very good pancakes that morning. But I'll tell you, my dad, he, try as he might, he tried to make these pancakes. He tried to put the right ingredients together. He tried to, to follow the directions and make sure that the, the recipe was, was pure and undiluted and just the way it was supposed to be. But unfortunately, he got the ingredients wrong. He selected elements from the pantry. That were not quite right. He mixed elements and ingredients together that did not fit. And it tasted terrible. In Colossians chapter 2 today, Paul is going to be showing us what happens when you mix elements and ingredients together that do not fit. He's going to be showing us what was going on in the church at Colossae. A group of Christians were gathering in this church, and yet there were some who had infiltrated the church who, who were maybe once a part of it, but, but, but yet now had gone astray and had started to bring in different elements and different ingredients into the life of the church. And as they tried to mix it up, something wasn't tasting right. And Paul calls it out in Colossians, the letter to the Colossian church. The title of my message today is The False Teaching at Colossae, Part 2. Part 2 of now what's going to be a three-part series. Beware of Subtle Syncretism. Beware of Subtle Syncretism. You say, well, what's syncretism? I've got a definition for you there right on your outline if you'd like to write it down. Syncretism is the union of different, sometimes even opposing, principles or practices in philosophy or religion. I'll read that again. Syncretism is the union or the bringing together of different and usually even opposing principles or practices in philosophy or religion. And with that in mind, this syncretism that was penetrating the church at Colossae, let's read from Colossians 2 verses 16 to 19. Paul writes this in his letter to the church. He says, and we're picking him up mid-thought here. We've come from from week one. We're in part two here. We're picking him up mid-thought. And he says this, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you. "...of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God." Last week, we looked at part one of this section of in, in, in the letter to Colossae, the false teaching at Colossi. We were in chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. The section really goes all the way to 3, verse 4, so we'll finish up with 2.20 to 3, verse 4 next week. And last week, we looked particularly at Colossians 2.8. Take a look at Colossians 2.8 one more time. Paul writes, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world and not according to Christ. Paul said in our study last week in 2.8 that it it was his advice to the church and he puts it in command form, he puts it in the imperative. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you Maybe a better word might be plunder you, pillage you, rob you of what? Of your maturing, of your growth, of your progress in Christ. And we asked the question last week is my soul, is my mind being plundered, being pillaged by an empty, deceptive, earthly philosophy? Is my mind being corrupted by a worldly way of thinking or by a tradition made up by man? Notice the similarities with chapter 2 verse 8 and what we read again in verse 16. In 2.8 he said, beware lest anyone cheat you. And in verse 16 he says, let no one judge you. In food, or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. In 2.8, Paul warned, don't let anyone plunder or pillage you. Here in 2.16, he says, don't let anyone judge you. Judge. The Greek word krino, meaning to pass judgment on, or to condemn it suggests that some in the church at Colossae were passing judgment upon others. There were some who were watching, witnessing the spiritual experience of others, the spiritual practice of others, and they were assessing them. They were evaluating them. They were judging them. And you and I know these kinds of people. They're the kind of individuals who, they give you a look whenever they think you're doing something wrong. They're the kind of people who, when you're doing something that they disapprove of, will kind of give you some sort of a clue that they're not impressed. They're always watching you. They're ever ready to criticize you. They love to tell you their opinion about how you should speak, how you should act. They always consider themselves the expert. When it comes to practicing our faith. They're like the religious police. Of course, to be a religious policeman, to be a person who's constantly evaluating, critiquing, assessing the religious practice of others, you actually need to be physically with them to assess it, don't you? And so that brings up up a very interesting point about this dialogue in Colossians When Paul says, don't let anyone judge you, don't let anyone assess you, critique you, constantly look over your shoulder and and critique your exercise of faith, what he's implying there is that the people who were doing such things were in the church. They were there. They were present. They were a part of the church. And there's numerous indicators in this letter that suggest That the false teachers that Paul is speaking of were within the ranks, not just outside the church. What were they doing in the church? Well, they weren't blessing the church with unity, they weren't blessing her with service or with love. No, Paul says they were critiquing, they were condemning, they were passing judgment. They were very much present in the church. They came on Sunday, so to speak. They sat down in the pew, so to speak. They went to the midweek programs. They were not just outsiders, but insiders. But all the while, they sat in judgment over the people. They judged the pastor. They judged the elders. They judged the people. They constantly stood in a position of judge. What did they judge? Paul says, they were judging with respect to food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbaths. You say, well, what's, what's all this? What, what, is this uh, what are these elements suggesting here? What are they critiquing? What are they assessing? Here we get an indication in verse uh, 16 of chapter 2. Where Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon new moon or sabbath. Here we get an indication as to what kind of ideology these false teachers subscribe to. By using terms like food and drink, by using terms like festival, new moon and sabbath, Paul is painting us a picture. He's revealing what these so called religious policemen uh, had in their background. And that is, at the very least, they had some measure of Jewish roots. Jewish roots. It was the Mosaic Law that prohibited certain kinds of unclean foods. It was the priests... And the people of Israel who were admonished in Leviticus 10 and 11 to abstain from certain kinds of contaminated water, the priests to to not drink under certain circumstances as they entered the Holy of Holies. There were rules, there were regulations under the Mosaic Law. Certain uh, groups like the Nazarites could not taste of the fruit of the vine. It was also the Jews who celebrated certain religious festivals whose calendar was very much attuned to new moon cycles. In fact, the Jewish, mo- uh, the Jewish calendar itself, each month begins with a new moon. It was the Jews who refrained from labor and work every Sabbath day. And so to speak of food and drink and festival and new moon and Sabbaths is to speak of infiltrators in the church who had a measure of Jewish roots, going back to the law, going back to the law of Moses, going back to the old covenant. This is not to suggest that they were merely Judaizers in orientation. For just a couple verses after this, we'll also find evidence that, that these false teachers, they also had participation in very mystical and visionary experiences that were often the hallmark of Gentile pagan worshipers as well. And so, many scholars in their assessment of what's happening in Colossians 2. What's the teaching? What's the false teaching? What is Paul combating? What's happening in the church that Paul's so concerned about? Many scholars have come to recognize that it was a a sort of syncretism that had taken place within the church. There were elements of Judaism. There were elements of pagan mysticism. There were elements of of idolatry and visionary experience. It was a whole melting pot. When When you took the ingredients and you put them together, it tasted awful. But Paul is not so worried about defining these teachers as much as he is concerned about the substance of their teaching and the influence that they're wielding. Paul says this influence that they're having upon the church, it's nothing but a shadow. Verse 16 again. So let no one judge you or condemn you with respect to what you eat or what you drink or what festival you celebrate or what new moon you recognize or what Sabbath day you keep holy. He says, which are all, all these things, they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Hebrews chapter 8 and ver, uh, chapter 10 speak of the Jewish law in terms of a shadow of things to come. And now that Christ has come, now that the substance is here, the shadow must disappear. Paul's logic is simple. Now that Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the law. The law was a tutor. The law was a guide to point people to Christ. And now that Jesus has come, we don't need that tutor anymore. We don't need that guide anymore. We no longer need the endless rules and regulations of diet and holy days. Those who come to Christ and yet go back to the law Paul says they're making a mistake. They're regressing. They're going from a state of maturing to a state of regression. From maturity to immaturity. And Paul warned about this very thing all the way back in in verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, beware. Don't let them plunder you. Don't let them pillage you. Don't let them cheat you plunder, pillage your soul and mind through, em- through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. That was his concern in 2.8. Don't let anyone plunder you. Pillage your mind. Verse 16, don't let anyone judge you, condemn you for what you eat or drink. And now look what he says in verse 18. Don't let anyone cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility the worship, and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. Don't let anyone plunder you, verse 8. Don't let anyone judge you, verse 16. Don't let anyone cheat you, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Brabeo in Greek. It means don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone rob you of a prize that you have. What prize? Your reward. Not your salvation. We can't have our eternal life taken away from us. Once we believed in Christ, we are His Forever. Jesus was quoted in John 5 as saying, those who who come to me have passed from death to life and shall not come into judgment again. So what will we be cheated of? Not our salvation. That's not what Paul's warning about in verse 18. He's talking about being cheated of our reward. Not only of the progress that we've made and the maturing that we've made on earth and the man or woman that we've become As we've grown with Christ, as we've walked with Him, as we've increased in maturity, we've grown in wisdom, we've grown in knowledge, we've bolstered our faith stronger in our expression of our spiritual gifts, striving with Him, Paul says you're going to get robbed of those things. And beyond that, the treasure that you're, you've been storing up in heaven through perseverance and through walking with him and serving him and doing things in his name, Paul says you can come to a point where the service that you've done in his name can be, can be cheated from you, robbed from you. The treasure that you had stored, taken. Taken. Don't let anyone sneak in, Paul says. Don't let anyone plunder and pillage your mind with the old law, with some man-made tradition. Don't lose ground. Paul was concerned that the Christians in Colossae were in danger of losing much. That they would lose a great deal of their reward, of their maturing in Christ. That they would lose it in proportion to how much time and attention that they would give to the subtle syncretism and practices of these false teachers we uh, we human beings we love uh, drama right we feed off of drama we like controversy uh, we like mysteries we like to discover things uh Fewer things in life arouse our interest more than when someone uh, indicates to us that, that they have a secret. My kids go absolutely crazy when I look at Bennett or Mallory and I say, "I have a secret." They they look at me and they're like, "What is it? Tell me now!" They they go bonkers. My kids will do anything I tell them so that I will just explain to them what the secret is, so that I will reveal the secret. And it drives them mad when they have to wait hours or even days before the secret is revealed, which is nine times out of ten a trip to McDonald's. What a secret, huh? We go big in the Anderson home. They love learning the secret. And in like fashion, the false teachers in Colossae They were masters of influence. They knew what it meant to have a secret. They treated their spiritual knowledge that they claimed to have had. They treated their their spiritual practices and exercises as if it were a special, mystical secret. Without which... You can't possibly know or please God. You need my secret, they would tell the fellow members of the church. You need to know what I know. You need to do what I do. I have the corner on how to practice this thing called Christianity. And if you don't come over here to our group and do our practices and do it our way, then you're going to be missing out. Paul had one goal in mind as he assessed the secret of the false teachers in Colossae. He wanted to expose the secret for what it was. And that is a figment of their imagination. What they called humility in verse 18, Paul would call false humility what they would call a visionary spiritual experience, Paul would say, you're doing nothing but worshiping angels. What they claimed to see in their mystical visions, Paul flatly denied the veracity of their heavenly claims and suggested instead that they were not forsaking their fleshly bodies, they were indulging them. Take a look again at verse 18. Paul writes, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by the fleshly mind. The infiltrators in the church had put on an aura of humility, but Paul likened it to false humility. Humility in a man or a woman is a very attractive quality. But when it is fake humility... When it is pretentious, when it is contrived, it can be poisonous. You see this kind of fake humility in highly legalistic Christian circles. You see this kind of fake humility in very many Christian cult groups. It's deceptive to know the difference between who is authentically humble in Christ And who is being pretentious about their humility? It's hard to know the difference. And so Paul says, watch their actions. Watch what they do. And these infiltrators in the church at Colossae, they were doing some very strange things. One of the seminary professors of mine at Biola and Talbot, Dr. Clint Arnold was very intrigued by some of the strange things that, that Paul claims that they were doing in Colossae, these false teachers. He was particularly intrigued by the mentioning of the phrase worship of angels in verse 18. Take a look at that. Worship of angels. And Dr. Arnold wanted to learn more about exactly what that entailed. He ended up devoting an entire book. I'm holding up a couple books today, but uh, The Colossian Syncretism by Clint Arnold. It's a fascinating book on the nature of the ideology and the practice of the, of the false teachers in Colossae. And Dr. Arnold, in, in parts of his summary of, of the work, he said this, and I quote, The philosophy at Colossae included an element of invoking angels, probably for protection, help and assistance. He goes on to describe this Colossian practice as, quote, calling on angels, invoking them, praying to them to protect them from evil powers, and also for revelation that they would have taken place in a visionary manner. That would have taken place in a visionary manner. So Arnold has done this comprehensive study, ...of what was taking place in Colossae in that day and age... ...and in the generations prior and the generations after that. And this is his, this is his conclusion. It is that when, when Paul says you're worshiping angels... ...what was happening on the ground in the church, according to Arnold's work... ...is that there were literally elements of people within the church... ...who were invoking angels in their prayers. There's particular evidence of the angel, the archangel Michael who was being invoked prayed to even worshiped why were they invoking angels they were invoking them for protection they were invoking them for um, healing they were invoking them for provision success in their lives even praying to them for protection from evil forces and even receiving revelation from these angels seeking the angels to reveal to them spiritual truths. Arnold's conclusions here, that the false teachers were claiming heavenly visions, comes right out of chapter 2, verse 18, in which Paul says, quote, they were intruding into those things which he has not seen. Now, there's some dispute there about the word not. In fact, some Greek manuscripts exclude the word not, where Paul says they're intruding, they're intruding into things which they've seen. In other manuscripts, it says in, intruding into the things which they have not seen. But in either case, whether the word not is there or not, no pun intended, what Paul's suggesting here is that they're intruding, they're entering into things that they know nothing about that whether they're actually seeing something or whether they're pretending to see something, whether the word not's there or whether it's not there, Paul says you're walking a spiritual path that you have no idea the consequences that lie ahead. We, th- we might think today of uh, you know, using uh, what was, what's been done in the past and what's still often used today, the use of a Ouija board. Many consider like a game, some sort of a, you know, a fantasy game, something fun. And yet I've spoken to uh, a great m- many individuals who have had uh, vi- highly unusual and evil and corrupting experiences using uh, this, this modern tool of communication called a Ouija board. There are others who, um, I've spoken to Christians today, but in their past, uh, they had a lot of experience with the occult and with uh, dealing even in witchcraft. And uh, I I won't go into great details, but folks, Paul's suggesting here, he says, you're walking a path that you have no idea the dangers that lie ahead. Whether you're seeing something, or whether you're just pretending to see something and you're announcing it to everyone, he says you're walking on thin ice. You're treading on things you ought not. You claim to have visions, but you're not seeing Christ. Your visions are blurred. You're seeking spiritual knowledge and power, but you're not seeking it from Jesus. You're seeking it from angels. And you're wrong to go to this source. You ought to seek Christ. But in your quest for a deeper spiritual experience, all you're doing is paying homage to lesser spiritual beings. All you're doing is worshiping angels. So prominent did this practice of angelic invocation become in and around the city of Colossae that about three centuries later, In 350 AD, in the town of Laodicea, just a little bit to the north of where Colossae is today, in the town of Laodicea in 350 AD, a council was convened, a Christian council of church leaders, and they issued another decree. They had been issuing decrees down through the, the centuries. They issued their 35th decree in 350 AD. I want to read it to you, and I quote, This is from, this is the 35th decree of the Church of Laodicea, 350 A.D. Quote, Christians shall not turn to the worship of angels, thus introducing a cultus of the angels. This is forbidden. Whoever, therefore, shows an inclination to this hidden idolatry, let him be anathema or cursed, end quote. Arnold's work and other, the work of other scholars down through the centuries have, have demonstrated that so prevalent was this praying to angels and invoking angels and, and calling out to angels for spiritual knowledge and, and to gain some sort of a, a mystical union with Christ or a deeper spiritual experience so prevalent. Penetrating was this practice in the church at Colossae and down through the centuries after it that 300 years later they were still talking about this problem in nearby Laodicea. You say, Well, what does that have to do with us today? Pastor Neil, I don't pray to angels. Good. That's a, that's a start. We're on the right track. But you know what? I know of about a billion people who pray to Mary. I know of about a billion people who pray to other saints. There are millions and millions and millions who put jewelry on that they believe protects them. Amulets, necklaces, and rings. There are folks who recite certain prayers that they've memorized over and over and over again in an effort to protect them and their children. There are others who involve themselves in, in, in learning the names of, of, of demons who afflict them. I remember speaking about it last week, a, a Christian woman who was so obsessed with identifying which demon did which affliction and which name should be called out so that that demon might leave. We are a, a mystical people. Not always in the West, usually, the, the Western American evangelical church is usually not so mystical in orientation. But don't kid yourselves there are many many people and i'm quite sure there are quite a few here who have jewelry who say certain prayers who who think certain ways that are contrary to going to the source the head christ and christ alone paul says you may not you may not pray to angels today but there are parallels in our culture And we ought to educate others who claim the name of Christ that they need not pray to another, that they need not invoke another, be it Mary or another saint or an angel for protection, that they need not wear certain jewelry or rub certain beads, that they must go to the source, and only the source, and that source is Jesus. That's the lesson of Colossians 2.18 for today. It is Christ who protects us. Only Jesus. Go to the source. By adding in, by adding in these seductive, mystical elements to our spirituality, these false teachers at Colossae, they were boy, they were not increasing in humility. They were not increasing in maturity. Paul says you're indulging the flesh by doing these things. You're actually gratifying the flesh. You're not humble at all. You're actually indulging your flesh more. Vainly puffed up, he says at the end of verse 18. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Ben Witherington writes, the false teachers, they insisted on self-abasement, but thus they became puffed up an act of humility or self-humbling actually became a source of pride for them. What they claimed they were doing in some sort of this ascetic and, and mystical and secretive and come this way and we'll show you how to gain a deeper intimacy with God, what they claimed was a humble element of their spiritual practice, Paul says, you're doing nothing but indulging the flesh. Don't let anyone plunder you. Pillage your mind too eight. Don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or anything, 2.16. Don't let anyone cheat you or disqualify you, chapter 2, verse 18, of your reward. Paul, asks these, Paul makes these statements to the Colossians, and so we ask ourselves, what am I susceptible to? How does the enemy get to me? Does he distract me by giving me an insatiable desire to pursue ideas and knowledge that are contrary to Christ? Is he plundering my mind? Is he pillaging my thoughts with worldly philosophies that are empty? Or does he fill my mind with doubt and and anxiety about my relationship with Christ? Do do I wonder, do I need to modify my faith? Do I need to add in maybe some some practices that, that others who appear humble, appear to be walking with Christ, but they're doing something different. Do I need to add in those practices, those rules, those regulations? Maybe I need to, maybe I need to draw in practices from other faith groups. Maybe I need to, to, to learn from this group over here and that group over there and pull in this. Maybe I don't have all that I need. Are you letting the enemy judge you in food, in drink, in festivals, and new moons, and Sabbaths, in rules and regulations, in the ways in which you practice your faith. Folks, the further you move away from the simplicity and freedom that is in Christ, the more likely you will become cheated and disqualified of your maturity and your reward. I remember speaking, uh, referencing Charles Spurgeon um, as he spoke about um, a story in Second Kings, and Spurgeon was was speaking about how Naaman the Syrian, um, Naaman the Syrian, he 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 contracted uh, leprosy. Right, I'm, I'm blanking out all of a sudden. Leprosy, correct? Do you know your Bible stories? I don't. Leprosy, and and Naaman the Syrian was was going back to. Uh, Elisha is saying, I, "I I need healing," and he said, "Go wash in the Jordan." He says, "I'm not going to do that. That's simple. That's too easy. Wash in the Jordan, the dirty Jordan, and Naaman the Syrian. He did not want to wash in the Jordan because he thought that the instructions were too easy. They were too elementary. They were too basic. They were too simple. It had to be harder than that to get rid of this disease." Spurgeon quotes, uh, he speaks of that story, and he goes back to the story of salvation and the gospel and the simplicity of it and the freedom of the gospel. And he says, there are so many, I'm just paraphrasing here, but he says, there are so many who come to me and they want something hard, they want something difficult, they want, they want to jump over a bunch of hoops, jump through a bunch of hoops and jump over a bunch of hurdles and, and say a certain prayers and, and do certain things and they want a long list of practices and prayers and efforts that they can do that, that might gain them something more with Christ. And Spurgeon, as if he was speaking the name in the Syrian, looks at these folks and he says, hey, it's simple. It's free. Believe in Him and live. Believe in Christ and live. Go to the Word. Go to the simplicity of the Gospel. Involve yourself in the church. Read the Word. Pay attention to the Spirit within you. And live your life. Don't draw from other religions. Don't draw from those who claim to have some sort of a secretive, mystical, more intimate experience. He says they're going to draw you away. A.T. Lincoln writes this. He says the advocates of the philosophy, these false teachers, they take the earthly situation As their starting point from which by their own efforts and techniques they'll somehow ascend into the heavenlies but Paul moves in the reverse direction he sees the starting point and the source of the believers life in the resurrected Christ in heaven let no one cheat you of your reward Taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. Take note, folks, right here that that verse 18, we've come through it now uh, for a considerable amount of time. Verse 18 is a description of the practices of the false teachers. He talks about they, t- they take delight in false humility, they worship angels, they intrude in things that they've not seen, they're vainly puffed up in the fleshly mind, and he continues that thought in verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head. Well, that's an odd way of putting it. They're not holding fast to the head? That's an unusual way for Paul to criticize these false teachers, don't you think? I think it's an interesting accusation that Paul makes here. I I might have expected him to say something like, you don't even know who Jesus is. I might have expected him to say something like, uh, you have no idea who Jesus is at all. Or, what you think you know about God, you know nothing. That's where we might have expected him to go as he's dishing out criticism to these false teachers. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say they don't know Jesus. He doesn't say they have no idea who he is. Instead, Paul says to, to the false teachers, in describing their practices, he says that they're not holding fast to the head. Most commentators have noted, and I wholeheartedly agree, that this suggests that the false teachers that are presently in the church at Colossae that Paul is writing to, that they were once very much a part of the church, that it is likely the case that they were once active, maybe even helpful, contributing members to the church, that at one point they were perhaps holding fast to the head, who is Christ, but somewhere down the line they got sidetracked, and they started looking back at some of the rules and the, and the regulations in the Old Covenant and they started finding them attractive again. And they started looking at some of the mystical, pagan elements of their culture and they said, Ooh, I, I like that. That is so cool. Maybe I can bring that into my, my church and, and maybe we can adopt that kind of practice over here. And they pulled in ingredients... And they mixed them all up, and they got sidetracked. Paul's critique in verse 19 is not that they don't know Jesus. It's that they're not holding fast to him. And this suggests that even, even a born-again Christian can really go astray after coming to faith in Christ. I don't know if they were believers or not, these false teachers, at one point. But the text suggests they very well could be. They very well could be. We don't know for sure. But it's interesting that Paul's critique is a lot less harsh than it could have been in verse 19. He could have said, you don't even know Christ at all, and you never did. But instead he tells them, he describes them as a people, these teachers, these false teachers, are not holding fast to the head they're mixing things poorly they're trying to to make their spiritual practice thrive but as they mix the ingredients together they're getting it wrong and as much as paul decries the changes in their spiritual practices over the years that they've made he still loves these people and he wants them to return and hold fast to jesus Paul doesn't evangelize them. He, like Jesus before him, opens up his arms to these false teachers, like Jesus did to the prodigal son, we might say, and says, come back, come home, stop looking at the law, stop seeking after angels, stop seeking these secretive, mystical, pagan visions. Jesus is all you need. You once knew him. Return to him. Paul's words give us hope for our family members who have once received Christ but have later gone astray, who once believed in Jesus but now live in the world, who once trusted Christ but who now believe a lie. Colossians two eighteen and 19 give us hope for those family members and friends that God perhaps in his providence knows who are his yet still and that even if they go astray, sometimes for many years. Our Heavenly Father is a patient God who loves to open His arms wide and say, come back, come home. I've missed you. God's given us His Son that we might be born again. He's given us His Word and His Spirit to show us how to live. He's given us the church that we might walk together as we walk with Christ. It is in these things that we find out how to truly grow in our faith. Not in mystical pursuits or an invocation to angels or others, but in Christ alone. Paul urges the church at the end of verse 19 to hold fast to Jesus, to the head, verse 19, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Doug Moo writes Christ is the substance of which the various rules and regulations, uh, various rules and celebrations these teachers are advocating are just the shadow. Christ is the head of the body, the source of all true spiritual nourishment. It is a real temptation, I think, in our day and age, especially for those of you who have been Christians for quite some time, um, to want something more. You've been a Christian for maybe a decade or two or three or four, and as you carry out your faith, the temptation is to think, there's got to be something deeper. There's got to be something more. I feel a little stunted. I feel like maybe there's somehow some way that that I should be stretched or, 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 or move in a different direction. The temptations are there for all of us. But friends, Paul is making it indelibly clear here in Colossians 2. He's saying the new, that which is secret, that which is mysterious, that which tickles your ear, of which there are so many things in this world. He says all those things Are shadows. They're figments of your imagination. And in the time in which you give in to those temptations and you pursue that worldly ideology, in the moments and in the years sometimes where you go astray, getting away from the simplicity of the gospel and of God's word, you realize just how much you lost. I look back over my life, um, even as a young man, um, and there have been moments where, sometimes months at a time, where I got sidetracked by something. Something tickled my ear, something caught my attention. And when I pursued it with everything in me, thinking that those those next few months would be so glorious and so wonderful as I, as I learned some new thing or idea or or as i subscribe to some new philosophy or way of thinking and yet it left me empty and it left me void and yet when i fill my soul with this god's word when i fill my mind and my heart with reminders of the simplicity of the gospel that jesus loves me that i have a home in heaven nothing else matters Nothing else matters. There's a lot of things that will tickle your ear out there, folks. And I have no doubt that right now you could think of many that are tickling your ear. Return to the source. Beware of subtle syncretism. It can be poisonous and deadly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be a uh, a focused people. It's hard, God, especially when we've been practicing our faith for many, many years Um, to know, God, how how to take that next step, how to grow even further, how to go even deeper. And sometimes in those pursuits, we get sidetracked, we go astray. God, would you forgive us when we subscribe to worldly philosophy? When we mix ingredients, God, that ought not be mixed. We do it all the time. The way we think about money, the way we think about entertainment, the way we think about how to parent, how to be involved in our marriage, how to live this life, Lord. There are so many ways to get sidetracked. Yet your word, your word, your word, Christ in us, your spirit who guides us, the church, these are the gifts, God, that you've given to us to guide us, to lead us, to show us how to live. Lord, would you always bring us back to the beautiful simplicity of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that we have a home in heaven, that we need not fear anyone or anything because on the last day we'll be with you forever. Lord, let us not get sidetracked by the empty deceit of this world. Let us stay focused on you, the source, the head, your son Jesus Christ